Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. This is The Word Podcast. Special guest, Rodri Marsden. Rodri, welcome. Hello. Uh, Rodri, who wrote uh, a a much-applauded piece in in Word uh, a couple of months ago about 40 noises that shaped pop music, two-part piece, which we're going to be talking about in detail and maybe even moving towards a third part of this. Uh, But first of all, Rodri, we always ask people who come on The Word Podcast, what music was in your house when you were growing up as a child what was there were there any records and so forth there were um, my father uh was a massive buddy holly fan um and still is and uh and every sunday evening the record player would come out and he would play old 45s most of which were buddy holly so uh yeah buddy holly predominantly um and the Wombles were like a huge thing for me when I was four. <laughs> right. <laughs> if, if that even counts. And I, I still think Mike Batt back then was just an incredible pop genius. There was, it's interesting, there's a piece uh, interview with Chris Spedding in the current issue of Word. Uh, where he's talking about Chris Spedding's work with absolutely everybody from kind of Jack Bruce, Brian Ferry, uh, whatever. And of mm. course he was a Womble. Well, I didn't, right, I didn't and, know that. And he, you can tell which one's Chris, because <laughs> they appeared at uh, Glastonbury not long ago, because he always plays the flying V right. outside the, uh, the Womble suit. But he says that about Mike Batt that of all the people he's worked with, Mike Batt's one of the most remarkable, because he could do absolutely anything in the studio. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. Since then, Mike Batt actually follows me on Twitter, and we, we occasionally exchange... Uh, things i'm quite disappointed with his twitter output compared to his music oh, so right, I feel, okay. also i I, uh, I post but i did post a clip i had of me singing along with a wombles song when i was four i had a cassette and i posted that singing along to wombling merry christmas and he did he did reply saying how much he th- how, how great he thought that was and that his own son did the same thing so we have an emotional bond now good but maybe we've talked too much about the so now, <laughs> nowadays you're 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 a writer and a musician. How does that work? Uh, the writing makes me the money, and the music <laughs> spends the money. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> so you play music with who? 
Um, uh, most notably with Green Gartside in Scriptability. Um, although activity uh, is sporadic, as, as is traditional with, with uh, the, the great man. Um, and I do yeah, lots of other little, little bits and pieces, including playing in a TV theme tune tribute band called Dream Themes. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, How does that work? Oh, tell us about that. Well, we used to be, uh, we used to be Frank Sidebottom's um, backing band. Uh, when he, whenever he did gigs in the south of England, we would be his backing, the O'Blimey big band. Uh, and when Frank was doing the raffle, <laughs> his gigs, we used to we used to play TV theme tunes, uh, Grandstand or Terry and June, as I remember. And uh, how's the Terry and June theme go? It does indeed, doesn't yeah. it? Does. That takes me right back. Yeah. So we uh, we just went with that, and so we play remarkably inept, very loud versions of TV theme tunes. But, but um, it's popular. There's a, there's an audience for something like that. Isn't it? Not particularly, but I mean, <laughs> we don't have a following. But it's quite nice to turn up and do a gig, and for everyone to know all the songs. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and for them to be, for them to be cheered when you finish them, which is, which is kind of quite unusual for me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's although it is strange to because most most of the people in the band are in their mid mid to late thirties. So we have a certain affection for things like, you know, Screen Test or the A-Team, uh, a very particular era. And then you play in a, a room to a, a bunch of 20-somethings who are just thinking, why are these men playing these instrumentals? And I it don't, means I don't nothing. Know. <laughs> it's you know, just exactly. completely identified with one particular generation, isn't it? Yeah, and it's quite, hard to, it's quite hard to come up with TV theme tunes, current TV theme, theme tunes that we want to do. So, uh, anyway, I won't drag you into our own personal hell on that so to talk about the the, the uh, this piece that we ran in word in two parts 40, 40 noises that uh, that uh, made pop music now when you were first presented with this as as an idea um what did you think what do we, you know what were the big challenges in in terms of putting together a list of things so did you think yes immediately that'll work or not i, th- I think the f- i think the first problem is thinking of any in a way, because it, you, a lot of these sounds you just take for granted, and you, you don't—I mean, you don't think of songs in terms of the, these building blocks. Really, you think about—I don't know—the emotion it provokes, or or, or what have you. Uh, so it was initially it was a struggle <laughs> to, to come up with them, and then there's and then I kind of cast around a bit and asked people, and then you almost get into the mind space, and they started pouring forward forth, and um, I think I ended up with far too many. I had, yeah, to, had yeah. to start hacking back brutally. So, so which are your favourites of the one? Just give an idea of anybody who hasn't read this or seen this. Well, a few of your favourites are the kind of things that we've got on these lists. Uh, I think the first one on the list was um, the piano glissando, which is which uh, we all hear which now. Which phrase is going to play? <laughs> That's it. That's the glissando. So, known to laymen as just running your hand. Yeah, I'm, I'm down the keyboard. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I learned piano from the age of six, so I have a kind of affection with that kind of, with the piano full stop. But um, yeah, I, th- I think when I was when I was younger, that represented something uh, quite thrilling in the realm. You know, when you're sitting playing Bach preludes uh, every every morning for several years, the, the idea of just going there. going for it. Yes. Yeah, that that kind of virtuoso flash and presumably that's nearly that's on nearly all of jerry lee lewis's records one would imagine so i, I think if he delivered a, a recording that didn't include it it would probably be sent back to him but, yeah uh, so that became a signature so <laughs> what else have we got uh oh we're going for again this is kind of piano piano thing now but my favorite sound 
ever, I think, is the Fender Rhodes. Um, and that's that keyboard yeah, that we hear in Satan. And here it's his, yeah. So that's Steely Dan. Yeah, Babylon means- Sisters, is that what it is? It is. The tune. So that's one particular, that's a case of, of a sound coming from one particular instrument. Don't know the way it's played or anything like that. You Tell us about the Fender Rhodes. Um, well, I, I didn't know this until I, start, until I wrote the piece, but apparently it was, um, the Fender Rhodes was designed as a, as a keyboard to be used by um, servicemen in hospital. Because it, it could kind of sit on their beds and they could play, oh, really? play which, which seems extraordinary. And when I've repeated it to people, they've just said, no, you're kidding. But um, apparently it's true. Um, but I'm, I'm quite interested in this whole group of sounds that was in this piece, which emerged from um, um, technology companies attempting to emulate the piano dur- during you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s and, and tr- tr- trying to emulate the piano in a portable form and, and failing horribly, but coming up with something very beautiful um, as, as a result. And the, the clavinet is another... Another example of that. What's the clavinet sound like? Have we got that? Have we got an example of a clavinet? Well, St- Steve, Stevie Wonder is the kind of predominant um, ex- exponent. There it is. Is that a clavinet? Yeah, pushed through a wah-wah pedal. So it's the idea that uh, in the 50s and 60s, Every sophisticated house wanted to have a piano, but they didn't have a room for a piano, or it was regarded as a piece of furniture that everybody wanted. Yeah. And so that if the companies could come up with something that was a more easily managed alternative, they, yeah. they'd go for it. And, of course, today you, you, you have a piano in a tiny box that big and you yes. just plug a MIDI cable into it, and um, so that problem has now gone away. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it created some... Some beautiful, beautiful sounds. I think. I mean, several. The Rhodes has several kinds of sound from that, from the tinkly, very tinkly sound that I kind of associate with eighties, eighties pop music to that more um, mellifluous noise that Donald Fagan made there. So, give us another example. What else have we got? Um, I quite like the explosive James Brown grunt. The expl- Yes. Now, this is this is I think referred to as Ugh. Spelled E-U-G-H, is that right? Exclamation mark. Yeah. We've got an example, Fraser. <laughs> so that, that's, there's got a bit of an H sound in it as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I think, I think he sometimes dispensed with the H and just went with the... <laughs> right. That was rubbish, that was terrible. <laughs> that's, that's why uh, I'm not famous for making the noise and James Brown is. So, so, so that, that sound... It became a, a key part of loads of James Brown records. People just expected that sound to be there. Yeah, I quite like it. I quite like it as a just yeah as a musical exclamation mark. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, uh, yeah, rounding off rounding off phrases in that in that way. Um, and now I've lost my way. <laughs> no, no, all right, don't worry. We can we, we, we can fix that. You know, the, the, your selection of, of sounds here. Is there anything that these sounds have in common? I, I wonder if, to some extent, they're kind of like the musical equivalent of fast food. You know what I mean? <laughs> they, they're, they're something that just appeals to the public ear. You know, when they hear it, they just think. You know, you go back to Jerry Lee Lewis and the fingernail down the keyboard, and you know, uh, there's just something about it that people think. It's beyond music. It's it's kind of play. Mm. I mean, I, one one interesting thing I I 
found in this was the way that virtuosity is either applauded or not applauded. Like, so um, it, one example in the in the piece was the uh, the kind of tapping on the fingerboard, the the very you know the very fast guitar solo. Right now, this I think this is <laughs> that's Eddie Van Halen, is it? Listen to him go. So, so what are you saying? People approve of that? Well, or I, not? yeah, I, th- I think that I think there's something to do with guitarists cramming in as many notes per second as they can is uh, is, is somehow seen as, as almost heroic. But any display of virtuosity from bass players seems, seems to have scorn, scorn poured upon it. So, I mean, we had we had we had slap bass in there, and we had fretless bass in there. So that's slap. This bass, is slap Stanley Clark Lopsy Lou, which is a fantastic um, thing, I think. So what happens when, a, when a, a sound like that kind of arrives in music? You know, and Stanley Clark is a you know very exceptional bass player and so forth. Do loads of musicians hear it and think, "I want to do that. I want to, I want to make that. I want to put that on my record. I wish I could master that." Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they do. But it, yeah, it's it's just interesting the way in. I mean, obviously, obviously, Stan, Stanley Clark got a fantastic virtuoso player. But if if when people try and copy it. <laughs> I don't know. It's almost like know your place, bass player. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up listening to you know my teens listening to kind of very awkward kind of John Peel uh, type bands where you, you you would never you would never hear that noise. And it's interesting how you you come to dislike the tone or the actual sound of the the, the music just because of the music it's associated with rather than the music itself. Do you know what I mean? Well, you, the, the, something like Stanley Clark yeah, I mean, sounds I, too sophisticated, a bit glib to some people. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, I would have, I would have, I would have sneered at that probably when I was sixteen. Horrible little oik that I was. Right. But uh, but now I've grown to appreciate it. It's like it's like the sax solos. You know, I, I would have hated sax solos when I was a teenager. I think you've got an example of sax solos, have we? I think there was the one here. Oh, yes, of course. Baker Street. Is that Raph Ravenscroft, he's called, the guy playing the saxophone, I think, all there? I think he is. I think, I think saxophones were barely mentionable at all, but really in the kind of, as I, as I was growing up, just, just awful, awful instruments. And now I love them, you know. I don't, I don't know. I've been listening to lots of Ashford and Simpson and lots of stuff like that, and I, I, I love them. I suppose saxophone is an instrument that you can't kind of... Uh, you can't busk your way on, can you? You know, whereas you can... <laughs> You can pick up a guitar and you can play three chords. Yeah. Whereas a saxophone takes a bit of mastering. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. And, and conversely, you know, guitar feedback, which was something I probably found exhilarating uh, many years ago. Now I find... Um, would you please stop making that infernal <laughs> dip? <laughs> that's, that's kind of adolescent fixation, is it? Getting feedback. What's well, this from? This is the beginning of Anthrax by Gang of Four. I, I do still really love this. It's probably not the best example. <laughs> There is that sense that something exciting is about to happen. You know? Yes. Yeah. No, I can. I can hear that definitely. I wish it would happen. <laughs> and of course, some of these are also they start off as mistakes, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, they do. Uh, I, actually, I can't think of any particular examples that start off as mistakes. Well, I, I'm, sure I, I, I'm going to throw one in. The, the most, the most, uh, the first case I know of, of something that started as a mistake. Uh, according to the story that's told, is that uh, Ike Turner's Kings of Rhythm 
We're on our way to a, a recording date at Sam Phillips Studio in Memphis in, I don't know, 1955. And, uh, and they had a guitar player called Willie Kizart. And they had all their instruments and equipment on the top of the car <laughs> that they were making their way down Highway 61 in. And these came loose, and Willie Kazart's amp fell off and bust the speaker cone. And so when they got to the, the, uh, the recording date, it sounded odd, the guitar tone, uh, but Sam Phillips liked it, so they just recorded. And that's Rocket 88 by Jackie Brenston, which to many people is regarded as the first ever rock and roll record is characterised by a mistake, by, by, by something actually being broken, um, contributing to the sound. I, I think anyone who's ever spent any time uh, in a recording studio will be aware of, of just how mind-numbingly tedious the whole process is of, of, of putting music together in that way. And I think, <clears throat> yeah, n- noises spring up from nowhere and, and you're, you're, so, you're so relieved that you're hearing something that you haven't already heard 50 times in a row think oh my goodness yes we'll have that and, and so a lot of that goes on in, in studios I mean I remember um, bands I used to be in we used to record in this um, studio just under a railway arch in Brixton just off Cold, Cold Harbour Lane <clears throat> and the uh, there was this <laughs> there was this noise this, this uh, electrical noise that kind of sounded like throughout it, you could constantly hear it and uh you became massively irritated by this thing but then you thought you know what let's try and inc- we'll have to try and incorporate this into the uh, into the yeah, music yeah, yeah. itself so we, we ended up kind of trying to turn it up and plastering it all over everything to make a feature of it rather than a uh, uh rather than a bug the the, uh, the you talk about phil collins gated drum sound yeah, which I'm sure will be f- familiar to many and uh, many people because Phil Collins' records were, went so far. I don't know, Fraser. You can you can play that for us. We, we can imagine the sounds <coughs> of <coughs> ab- that's Something perfect. Like that. That's go. better yeah. on his own. This is the thing that was uh, we, we we recently had the, the monkey playing the drums, didn't we, on some uh, yeah. TV ad in, in in the same style? How did that start? Did that start as a mistake, or does that start with somebody just wants a sound that's absolutely huge and distinctive? Um, I don't I don't know actually, but I imagine it's one of those things where you you know you've got drums running through loads of effects units. And then and people are twiddling, and then suddenly, suddenly, oh, you had it a minute ago. You had yes, it a minute go ago. Back, go back, go, go back, back, go back. Yeah, turn it back. Yes, that. And um, and it's the difference between you know a drum hit, and then when it's extended in that way, so you could, it's just like a like a block of noise. And then you should put extra reverb on top of that. It, yeah, it just becomes yeah, this massive. What difference has it made in studios nowadays? Because you don't just hear the sound; you can see the sound, can't you? Now, because of the way things are recorded. Yeah, you're looking at it on a on a display. Has that made a difference, do you think? Well, I mean, yes, in the sense that everything is infinitely editable and, right. and copyable and pasteable and reversible. You know, it's made all of those processes that would have taken weeks beforehand um, very, very easy to do. Um, I'm not sure if that's, if that's a particularly good thing. Right, right. Now, the second part of this feature, the, the first part very, very much uh, kind of uh, what you might call natural sounds... And the second part, I suppose, is, is mainly stuff that's come along in the era of uh, digital music, in the era of dance music, you know, which is 
change things massively. Um, and lots of these effects that are now available at the push of a button, pretty much, yeah. were originally very, very laborious to make, weren't they? To actually, to actually get these sounds in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think sampling... It, it, I mean, it, when I wrote the piece, it kind of tails off. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously the quality remains very yeah, high throughout, absolutely. absolutely. But the, in, in terms of the number of sounds, it tends to tail off more recently. And that's, I think that's bec- kind of because of sampling. I mean, sampling kills this, this idea, in a way, because everything can be, everything can be lifted and copied and, and repurposed. Um, so it's it's less about sound creation than sound manipulation, I suppose. Right, right. But um, it, it, it's, it's interesting, though, in the, the speed in which kind of newer noises can be devalued. I think one of those one of the things we had in here was uh, the orchestra hit, which is a kind of, again a, like in Yes's owner owner of a lonely heart. Yeah. I think was probably probably the example. Might be otherwise. <laughs> That at the right very the beginning, beginning, yeah. Otherwise known as a stab, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I first heard that on, I mean, Art of Noise Records. Of course, they they were involved in the uh, in the making of, of that album as well. But I heard that on Art of Noise Records when I was twelve or thirteen, and I just I just found that to be it had been an extraordinary noise. I mean, obviously that was something to do with those Art of Noise records, which I adored, and the way they were presented as these very futuristic, very strange. Um, uh, objects, but then three years later, that noise was all over every Stock Aitken Waterman uh, record, yes. and it just became faintly repulsive. It, was, it would just is that by association, or just you'd heard it too much? Yeah, you'd heard it too much. So it's, it's one of Stock Aitken or Waterman decided that that was uh, a good thing to put at the end of a verse or a chorus and use it. I, I mean, I was listening. We were listening to some. I was listening to some old Squitty Politi stuff uh, recently, with a view to. Um, uh, we're doing some concerts and trying to find you know some old songs to do, and I found yeah suddenly in the middle of provision, which is 1988 I think, suddenly there's this orchestra stab, and it was oh no, what an awful thing to hear in the, in the middle of all that. So, how do you how do you feel? We were, we had Thomas Dolby in the, in, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and um, I was asking him about the, the the kind of 80s sound, which now has a very bad reputation. You know that people associate the '80s with a, a very kind of tinny drum sound and very thin, and uh, you know a lot of lot of tinkly keyboards and so forth. Do you, do you share that view, or do uh, you look at that with you hear that with affection? Uh, I, I I love tinkly keyboards now. Right. I don't know why that is. Again, again, I I, I would have yeah gone through a period where I loathed them, but I think one of them is in here as well. The DX7. Uh, electric piano sound, which is described online as the uh, the most ir- <laughs> yeah. There's a forum and it says DX electric DX7 electric piano, the most irritating noise ever. Oh well, let's mark. hear that. Do we can we I'm have not, we got the the most irritating I'm noise ever? Sure. Do we know what the example of it was? So that's Chicago. So that's that's what the. That's why the yeah, <laughs> it's the vocal that comes out. <laughs> but that's why that's what the, you know, some musicians regard as the you know just an evil sound that kind of thing because we had it too much. Yeah, but again, it's to do with it being heard too much. And at the time, everyone was like, "That's fantastic! That sounds fantastic!" So everyone used it, and then everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You you mentioned that Brian Eno in this piece that Brian Eno described. Uh, I feel love the uh, Donna Summer breakthrough hit as being. I think the record that changed absolutely everything. There was some some quote similar. 
that took a lot of putting together that sound, didn't it originally? Yeah, because because the technology. I mean, today that would just be so easy to do. You just feed the noise into a sequencer and just you make sixteen little dots in the matrix on your sequencer and uh, and and off it goes. Whereas that, when they did it in what the mid seventies, I suppose. Yeah, late mid to late seventies. How would they have done that then? Uh, an immense amount of studio trickery. I, I can't remember the guy's name who who actually uh, who was the studio assistant that day. Right. But he'd um, he'd worked out a way of doing this that Moog uh, hadn't. You know, they hadn't they hadn't worked it out either. This way of syncing the uh, syncing the synthesizer to the tape uh, and, and letting it run and making that yeah incredible sound. Um, but yeah, very, yeah, very very laborious. Um, and as you say, changed um, changed dance music. Because uh, the other example from uh, around about the same time, and I don't know if this is on your list, it probably not, is is Night Fever, um, or the, any of those records that the Bee Gees made that went on Saturday Night Fever. They made those with the traditional rhythm section, and then just looped everything. They just apparently they were listening back to it, and one of the Gibbs said, "No, I like the way it just sounds. I want it to be as repetitious as possible." And so they did this by just looping tape, didn't they? Yeah, and it's interesting now. Of course, loop, looping is part and parcel of making music with computers. It's just like you get a, you get a section and then you just paste it. Paste a computer it, paste is it, a loop it. machine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Really? It just and repeats things. And of course, it, what, what you're doing now with computers is battling with the computers to try and get back to a, a more humanized version. And you know, you, you, you'll see in menus on computer sequences, humanize. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, actually, that that yeah, that, that instruction. Yeah, it's, humanize. It's, yeah, in order to kind of just shift the notes backwards or forwards slightly, or the the, the velocity in which they're they're hit. Uh, so yeah, we, we we yearn for those pre-BG's days. It's a serious syndrome, isn't it? That because I was intrigued by this when I was doing a piece a while ago about about the decline of recording studios, and I discovered that nearly all these classic recording studios, Muscle Shells or you know Gold Star in Hollywood or whatever, um, they've lent their names to bits of software that you can bring into your Pro Tools that will supposedly give your recording the sound of Studio A at, uh, you know, at Motown in 1965 or something. Yeah, I mean, there's various uh, bits of software, reverb modelling software, where they... I, I, I don't even know how they do it, but I think they make a... The, no, they, yeah. they, they go into the room, apparently, and record silence. God knows how that works. Yeah. <laughs> This is selling fresh air, this really is, isn't it? I think they probably, yeah, they record the response to probably a very short noise. And, uh, and yeah, and they're able to, yeah, we're able to digitally uh, emulate that in our bedrooms. Thank goodness. No, no more going to sing in the bathroom in order to kind of get that slight, <laughs> slight reverby noise. We were also talking to, uh, in a recent podcast to musician David Ford, who was, who was saying that... Um, that there's there's a great correlation between the kind of the way records are made on Pro Tools nowadays, and the kind of records that radio stations will play nowadays, and so the music you hear on the radio is quite a narrow spectrum of sound, and that's what radio is used to nowadays. And they don't like anything that gets outside that spectrum. Do you think there's anything in that? Yeah, I, I think there probably is, and of course, in, in uh, with that comes the whole question of the, the mastering 
thing, which you which you hear a lot about these days, the way that records are becoming louder and louder, and the, the, these just this block, this block of noise um, that we're very yeah we're very used to hearing. And um, if you get a CD that isn't as loud as the last CD that you've it's a you've got, you th- yeah you think that it's somehow malfunctioning. Right, right. <laughs> now we, we've um, obviously since since the uh, the piece was it was in the magazine and on on the website with all the uh, with all the samples and that's obviously available for uh, for people to listen to if they want to. We've had loads of uh, suggestions of, uh, of of noises that that aren't in there and there maybe there maybe should be and i'm just going to try and get this uh i have to say this is my suggestion and if anybody can think of a name for this uh i'd, I'd be very very grateful this is the big the bit that you hear just about the beginning of just about every scar record just that drum sound oh yeah you know yeah um that's a if you go back to the scatterlights or whatever you'll hear that on just about Every one of the records. Here it is again. It's delightful, isn't it? It is. I'd, I'd like that to be my ringtone, actually. I don't know what that's called. I mean, it's boom biggity boom or something. It's it's <laughs> the guy who he died recently. The the drummer. He was in his eighties. He's still he's still playing. Off. I've now sadly forgotten his name. Uh, Scar has Scar has the number of those un un unnameable noises. We were talking earlier about the. Chick, 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 chick. Which is one of the most ubiquitous no- noises in popular music, isn't it? But nobody's given it a name at all. Now, that is done by somebody at a microphone making that noise just as you've done it. Isn't yeah. It? it must be. Yeah, there's no, it's, it's a very precise uh, percussive sound. You, you wouldn't be able to match that shaking, uh, shaking an egg, as people, uh, right. an egg with beans in, as people do in, in studios. So, yeah. This, and, and I don't know if this is an example, but somebody suggested this drop D tuning. Is that an example? That, uh, That's Nirvana. That, that, yeah, I, I'm hearing a D there <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> but, Why is it called drop D tuning? Uh, uh, on, a, on a guitar, uh, the bottom three strings are tuned E, A and D, usually. And if you drop the E to a D, you get D, A and D, which is basically the power chord, which, we, which, we were, which is also mentioned in, in the piece. Um, uh, the Kinks, you really got me. Right, right. That one. Which is not an example of uh, drop D uh, tuning, <laughs> but it just but, but, but by dropping the D, it becomes easier to play. You just put your finger across <laughs> the whole three frets, so it becomes easier to play. Another suggestion, I don't know if this is a perfect example, is the Vox Continental organ sound. Is that it? I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. Tragically. That's, well, that's how I'm showing my age. That is the Stranglers covering "Question Mark" and Mysterians' "96 Tears," which I always thought was a, an example of the uh, the Vox Continental sound. If anybody knows better, they can get in touch. So that's another another one of your kind of piano substitutes. There's, I mean, I saw some kind of blistering criticism online for things that that, that, <laughs> that weren't included. But I mean, it's difficult to approach this subject without. Um, you know, without putting your own likes in, into it, do you know what I mean? I mean, somebody somebody was furious that there was no Led Zeppelin mentioned throughout the whole. People, get, I mean, just as a general point, people get so indignant about this sort of stuff. You know, as if you've kind of, as if you say, we've scientifically tested the forty, you know, most important noises in popular music. There are there was, no other possible answers. No, absolutely. <laughs> there was one. The uh, I, I mentioned uh, within the palm palm muted guitar, where you just mute the uh, the bottom of the bottom of the uh, strings with your with your hand and I, I, I used an example Billy Bragg 
which to me growing up was a, 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 a big thing. A, a, yeah, well, not, not well, it's not, yes, it was yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. A, um, a very familiar manifestation of that sound. And of course, just get these sarcastic uh, comments online saying, "Yes, of course, Billy Bragg is the best example of that sound." And of course, you know, if you're into, if you're immersed into the, if you're immersed in the world of black metal. Um, Billy Bragg is not the best example of that, and they'll be furious that you haven't <laughs> citated Hellhammer or something. It's just a general point about the web, isn't it, Fraser? People reach for indignation straight away. Don't yes, they? Indeed. that's the default setting. The default setting is, is indignation. I'm sure they don't mean to sound as indignant as they come over. No, they don't. Do you think? So, I, anyway, well, you, you're gonna, we're going to try and do another part of this. Yeah. We've you know, done two parts so far, but we've had loads of other suggestions. Is there anything you you kicked yourself that you missed that you want to you'd like to put in the third part? Ah, I'm, I'm a I'm a bassoon player, oh, um, right. and I, I'd qu- part of me wants to shoehorn the bassoon in there, but there's just not enough examples. The the, the examples of bassoon in, in rock are very say, few yeah, and yeah, far yeah, between. Can you tell me one. Well, I think um, <laughs> I, th- I think it appears in Puppet on a String, right? And I, th- yes, and I think it's in um, probably in loads of Tears European. of a Clown as well. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm sure it's in there. Also, um, there's a bassoon solo in Outdoor Minor by Wire. Just Wire. What about the, uh, the Motown tambourine? Motown tambourine, I thought was a really good point somebody made. Yeah, tambourine, yeah, tambourine was definitely... Uh, I think tambourine might have been... Might, might have not made the cut originally. Which he probably should have, should have done, actually. Yeah. Because if you go and listen to all those classic mid-60s Motown records, that they all got all it on there. They had one tambourine player, didn't they, yeah. in, the, in, the, uh, in, the great, in the great band, the guy who just played the tambourine. Fun and you can hear him at the beginning of Heard It Through the Grapevine, can't you? Yes. He rattles the tambourine at the very beginning of that. And it is extraordinary that that, that, that sound worked for them on pop radio so well because it made, it made everything cut through, didn't it? It made the rhythm cut through. Yeah. But it also had that churchy... <laughs> gospel, you know, the church ladies on Sunday thing about it, which was the kind of the basis of Motown, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it was the, the it was the kind of the ghetto bit of Motown, and also the the bit that appealed on pop radio in in Britain. Extraordinary thing. And uh, another suggestion I really liked was the the count off. The one, the one, two, three, four, beginning of beginning of uh, <laughs> which is obviously not an integral part of the song itself, but you know everything from um, I saw her standing there. The Beatles begins with a one, two, three, four. One, it's more than that, isn't it? It goes one, two, three, four. Yeah, it's percussive, isn't it? That yeah. first, that first. Is there that Paul McCartney does that? Sorry, that's why the Ramones, obviously. Yeah, the Ramones. It almost turned into a. It was a joke, wasn't yeah. it? Because they had that at the beginning of every. Uh, <laughs> Every tune. And he never seemed to bear any relation to the speed at which they played <laughs> no. it. They just said one, two, three, four as fast as they possibly could. And then you got, uh, I remember, S Express. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Yes. As well. So lots of, lots of different manifestations. And that, that, you see, comes from Sam and the Sham and the Pharaohs, Woolly Bully, I think. Oh, thanks for telling me. <laughs> so the, Showing my own ignorance. The, no, no. But I'm, sure, I'm sure they got it from somebody, somebody long before. Uh, I, I had a half an idea that there might be something in silences in records. That there are there are lots of silences in you know well known records, little pauses. Not just between the tracks, you mean? Here. No, I'm talking about within, uh, and I can't immediately think of one. But they're all slightly different. They must be slightly different lengths, and obviously they're they're governed by what came before them and what came after them. 
We're, we're back to recording silences again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're, you're going to have a go at doing uh, doing part three. Yeah. Which we'll uh, we'll look forward to seeing. And if anybody's got any suggestions, you know, post them on the on the website wordmagazine.co.uk. The Word Podcast. It passes the time. Roderick, you've had a bit of an internet hit recently, haven't you, with a, an idea you had. No, no don't be modest. Huh. I'm very impressed by this. You started a thing on Twitter, yes, called First Date Disasters, yes? First Date Hell. Okay, start. Yeah. tell us the story from the beginning. I, I, I'd be loath to call this an idea, I have to say, <laughs> because it wasn't, it wasn't an idea, it just sprung from... I, 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 was, on a, I was on a very long walk home. Um, it was my own choice to go on the long walk, incidentally. Um, and uh, I walked past a pub in Clapham South where um, about nine years ago I'd been on an excruciating date. My only memory of this pub was sitting in this pub with this girl just being unable to think of anything to say. Rather like me, me today at the work, work podcast. <laughs> no, no. Not at all. And, um, and, I, and I just tweeted about it. And um, What did you say in your first tweet? Can you remember? It, it was a lot. I mean, I remember the girl was from Wigan. And, uh, and I just remember, just in the, in the depths of, of, of not knowing what, what to say to her, saying, So, Wigan, what's it like then? <laughs> and I think if you utter those words uh, during a date, you, you, pro- you, know, you should probably go home. But because we were too British and polite to say, this date's dreadful, I'm going home, we, we stuck it out for three hours saying things like that. Obviously, what I've just said there does not fit into 140 characters, no, but no, the, no. the crucial okay. point was, yeah, yeah. Wigan, what's it like? And uh, I had lots of replies, uh, thousands of replies from people. Um, so you started a hashtag? I didn't start a hashtag, crucially. Uh, people were just post, posting them back to me, and then I reposted them, and uh, thus, thus maintaining complete control of the project. Very neat, uh, uh, accidental um, idea there, and uh, and yeah. So I what started... are the examples of some of the ones that people came back with? The, the first one that just made me laugh out loud and think, "Oh, this, these these are going to be really good," was someone who's a girl who said um, he took <laughs> he took me out to the pub car park to show me his motorbike, revved it for ten minutes, did a lap, then drove off. <laughs> And and they're all there, and it's just it's just full of just uh, and the thing is when when you go on these dates there's so much riding on them you're so hopeful and so every story has its has its you know enormous poignancy um, and there's you know I, I, there's just so many examples of, of fantastic uh, things ma- mainly to do with man's inhumanity to woman I mean it's, I mean eighty five ninety percent of the stories were from women this is what I was going to say yeah and, uh, <laughs> why do you think that is well I mean, I mean it's either because men are just less forthcoming about their own horrific experiences or just we're more badly behaved and I, I tend to think it's probably the latter I mean there are lots of lots of examples of bad excuses to get out of dates the one guy said uh, he had to he had to go home because there was a chicken breast going off in his fridge <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah so we were talking about this in the office uh, when this was you know first uh, starting to uh, go mad on Twitter and uh, the thing that makes it work is that it is is that it's first date hell or first date disasters mm. because you could have things equally going wrong on the third date or whatever. Yeah. But what makes it work is the idea that it's the first date, isn't yeah. it? That that was the beginning and that was the end. Yeah, and, and the other thing is that we have... There were just loads more of these stories around these days just because of the past ten years, internet dating becoming a thing. 
and, and what that's introduced to dating is this, this idea that um, you will spend an evening in a room with someone you've never met before, you know virtually nothing about, um, because a computer says that you're compatible, <laughs> which is a pretty crazy... Pretty, I read pretty, some stats the other day, which I find difficult to believe, that 65% of people nowadays meet their partner via internet dating. Can that be true? That wouldn't surprise me. I think uh, that's it's, extraordinary. I think it's, it's it's as true as the same percentage meeting a dance hall in the 1930s. It's the way people meet. Yeah, it's the one. It's the way we socialise. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be via a, a specific dating website, but you know, I'm sure I'm sure lovers blossomed on the word forums, no? Yes, yeah, but has. yes, I'm yes, sure. Yes, has, it does. Yeah. Oh, yes, we know about it as well, don't we? I can yeah. think of two examples. But it, it's happening on Facebook, presumably, all the time. So this is this is completely replaced the way that my generation used to uh, used to pair off, which was somebody like me taking the long walk across the dance floor to the other side, the echoing of my footsteps to go to Angela Nopal. Oh, Angela. And ask her if she wanted to dance. And then she would say, no thanks. And then I'd go back to the dance floor. I just don't know if I can go on. (laughs) (laughs) It's a serious serious point, you know, for for hundreds of years. We were talking about this in the office again the other day. Hundreds of years kind of pairing off was, uh, was happened around dancing, didn't it? And drink. Well, even before drink, you know, in the days of Jane Austen, you know, people weren't three sheets of the wind in the in the 19th <laughs> century. They had a dance card. They knew exactly who they were going to dance with, you know, and they, that would immeasurably add to their excitement and their anticipation of the evening. And that's gone. That's replaced with Facebook going, you know, do you to go for a drink? Yeah? Well, you know, I'm sure there are more romantic ways of, uh, of, of approaching people online, I'm sure. Right, I'm right. sure there are. I found two uh, music-related um, uh, dating stories that I brought with us, just in order to tie it in. Go on. I thought uh, one girl complained um, she went on a date with a guy in a covers band, and he uh, she asked him if he wrote his own material, and he said, "No, there's enough music out there already," <laughs> <laughs> which is quite nice. Uh, and, a, and a man took a girl to the pub on the premise that they have good music. Uh, there and uh, they arrived and there was a mass ukulele practice. <laughs> uh, and, and I have to say the, uk- the ukulele's become uh, th- this. That will not be featuring. I have to say in the, in the next uh, the next forty noises. Really, you don't thing. like the. I, I know it's become something. I, do, I, I can no. I can no longer bear it. I mean, I, I know. I know people who um, who play. In fact, I'm fr- a friend of mine um, <laughs> just took her grade one ukulele exam. <laughs> she's, she's she's about thirty thirty one thirty two years old and she was uh, taking her exam with a load of six year olds. Well, he's going into school now instead of the recorder. Yeah, I, I suppose. Is he really? Yeah. It's I, more pleasant noise than the recorder, isn't undoubtedly, it? and, and more useful in real life. Yeah, in what way? You can take it with you on holiday. And it's oh, what annoyed people. You'd accompany, <laughs> <laughs> you'd accompany yourself. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, no, no one would bemoan the death of the, the descant recorder at, at all. But I, I suppose, uh, yeah, May, I think it's just become a bit twee and kooky. Right, but, but um, you know. I can be convinced otherwise if uh, if if, if, the, if a petition is drawn. <laughs> so the, your, uh, your your tweet hit has turned into a book. Yeah, uh, I'm yes. So this is how to get a book deal, kids. 
I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've currently got to yeah, put together a book about bad dating, which will involve some of my own um, poignant reflections and, um, and then a massive uh, admin job asking asking people if I can use their tweets in a book. So. Right, right. So it's, it's interesting that it, it was... Uh, it was a hit before you probably recognised that it was a hit, isn't it? You know, the, that's the thing that happens with the internet. Memes, is that what we call them? Indeed, yeah. That it's the, it's the market out there that tells you this is interesting. Yeah. Rather than you knowing yourself. You didn't tweet the first one going, yeah, this is going to take off. It's going to go like wildfire. No, I, I mean, it, that, it happened uh, late at night. I tend to tweet rather inten- in, intensively uh, late at night. And so I'd, I'd reposted a lot of these stories uh, and, um, at night. And then in the morning I went to a meeting, emerged from the meeting, and I suddenly had like 3,000 more followers on Twitter. So, yeah, it was uh, something of a surprise. Very good. Yeah. But they can't get it out in time for Christmas. They can't. I think it's going to be uh, the perfect Valentine's Day gift for the singleton for the singleton you know who needs a bit of reassurance that it's not just them who's having th- these horrific experiences. So if we're, we're going to go around, we're finished with the first date disasters. We'll go around the table. I'll go first. When I took Angela Noble to the pictures, I didn't have enough money to pay for her. So I had to turn to her at the, at the, the box office and say, I'm sorry, have you, got, have you got some money? So it was not a good place to start at all. What about you, Fraser? Uh, never had a disaster. Never had a first date no, disaster? No, I think that reflects more on my lack of dating than <laughs> any skill I might otherwise possess. No, 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 no. So, Rodri, have you got one? I've got loads. I've been loath to share them just in, because so many people have... Uh, I think a quarter of a million people have viewed the page with, with these tweets on I've been I've been concerned that if mine were on there... I, w- I would start getting, you know, someone would recognise themselves and uh, ex- oh, expo- expose me as, a, as, a, as a just a terrible datee. Um, but I, I do remember going on a date where uh, the girl turned up, I was reading The Guardian, <laughs> and the girl turned up and she went, oh my God, you don't read that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not a marriage made in heaven. Newspapers best avoided, of all kinds, I'm sure. Rodri, thanks very much for coming in. You're welcome. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent every month. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.